Well, good morning. This has nothing to do with the sermon I'm about to preach on, but I just want you to know I feel kind of bitter this morning that we've gotten halfway through March and most of the winter and there's not been hardly any snow. And I just think that we've been cheated and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an, an egregious injustice. Um, so, I don't, yeah, so I'm glad there's some people who are getting some amens, but not a lot. So, anyway. I have some friends uh, up in, uh, is it Montana or whatever? But I think they have like eight foot of snow in their front yard. But, and I, they, showed, they put it on their Facebook post this morning. I wrote, awesome. So, anyway. So today, I think that I'm on my, the last portion of this Redeeming the Time series. And uh, I, I think that's true, unless the Lord leads me differently this week. But I think that, uh, and so uh, as a result of that, I, I, I think it's appropriate to bring um, to you a kind of conclusion that that's just really important. Uh, and it, too, is predicated on <clears throat> that important passage from, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the Gospel of John. Um, and it really has to do... In that portion of the Gospel of John, chapter 15, it has to do with, with judgment. Now, before I get into that, um, we're kind of all over the, the place on this idea of judgment. I remember growing up in the church that I grew up in, that there was way too much in the way of people feeling as if God was ready to pounce on you for every little infraction. Do you ever experience that where somebody, you know, you you were around some people that just, that's just kind of how they saw God, that, you know, he was ready. If you step out of line in the least little way, then, you know, really, literally, all hell could break loose on you for that infraction. Um, And usually those were by people who... (laughs) You know, again, the church that I grew up in, we had self-appointed sin spotters, you know. Uh, they were the watchdogs of the church. They were determined to find somebody who was sinning, and then when they found it, it was their dutiful responsibility to tell people about those sinners that they spotted sinning and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there, I, I could tell you a bunch of stories. Uh, I don't know if uh, my brother-in-law was one, for example, there. Uh, when he was a teenager, 14 years of age, um, skipped school and, uh, you know, skulked about the neighborhood. And one of the one of the one of the saints of the church was driving past and saw him in between two houses smoking a cigarette. <laughs> so, so light doesn't travel as fast as that saint getting to my mother-in-law and so she was raised she was she grew most of her faith under a pastor who believed that your salvation was very arbitrary that if you died without confessing any sins without confessing all of your sins if you died without confessing your sin you would go to hell so it, it never kind of dawned upon her and some of the others that that's really a salvation by works, right? That's not a salvation by grace. 
anybody are you familiar with that kind of teaching where you know any anybody here have that kind of teaching before where that was uh so anyway when bob opened the front door these two arms came out from inside the house and grabbed him by the shoulders and you ever see in those looney tune cartoons when they have those little swirly things when somebody just like takes off real fast well those swirly things appeared and he was yanked into the house <laughs> and uh and she, my mother-in-law was so terrified of the judgment of God upon him because of that, the sin of smoking. That, And I've said this, I've described this before, uh, but Bob saw the whole of the house at various angles, impact points, uh, all of those kinds of things, you know, because she was so terrified about his eternal salvation. Yeah, Ruth? <laughs> that's right yeah so anyway so there was this really unhealthy I think biblically erroneous way in which people saw the judgment of God as it worked out in people's lives we really do live under grace and thank God we live under grace but in today's world the judgment of God is perceived by not only the world, but by many churches and people in those churches, as you basically have to be like an Adolf Hitler or a a Putin or someone like that before you ever have to worry about the judgment of God. Everybody else is pretty safe. They don't have to worry about God according to those people and to that teaching. That, too, is really a grievous error in how we're supposed to understand Scripture. It really is. And, and so uh, I, I really think that the way that we understand the judgment of God is kind of the middle way. Um, and it's, a, it's a, really it's a more intellectually rigorous way than these simple ways in which we default how God brings judgment to people who are unfaithful or who have been disobedient to him. And later on, I am going to make a distinction between God's discipline and God's judgment. I think there's a difference between those two things. Um, and so we'll unpack that a little bit as well. So for those of you who were raised in a church tradition where Uh, all you heard about was God's judgment. That is not where I am coming from this morning. Um, I am speaking to you as a person who is very thankful that I live under the umbrella of God's grace, the saving umbrella of his grace. Yet at the same time, I understand that when I am disobedient, God will discipline me. And... You know, and I think that there's a, a, a place where if you even move beyond where the discipline, that there can be judgment. And I think that uh, this gospel, John 15, speaks to that. And so it wouldn't be appropriate or fair for me to unpack the text as I have so far without going the whole way and commenting, speaking on these other texts in John 
15 verses 1 through 8 and then verse 16. So, uh, so I'm going to spend some time on that this morning. And as I do, I think we've reached a point in this series where probably all of us here, including myself, <clears throat> need to come to some kind of, of a conclusion about where we are and what we're going to do. Where we are and what we're going to do in light of how he calls us to abide in him and as we abide in him to produce fruit. And when we produce that fruit, we give glory to God and we demonstrate ourselves to be his disciples. For the believer, there is no getting away the fact that we exist to give glory to God. And the reality that he demands, we show ourselves to be his disciples. And so if we live lives... that are not giving glory to God. And there's confusion when people observe our life and would not conclude that we are his disciple. Then we are in a precarious position. Because there is no way that Christ-likeness doesn't give glory to God and doesn't demonstrate the believer to be a disciple. There's no way. And so if we are saturated enough with the Christ-likeness of God, those two things will be very, very, very apparent. Have you ever watched a person on TV that you did not know, and they were talking about something or other, and it may not even it may not have even been about the church or believers or Christians, but the way they talked, you thought, ah, that person seems to me like they're a believer. And then you find out later that they were a believer. And that's just because God leaked through, even when they weren't talking directly about spiritual things. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today, <clears throat> and I think that we all uh, need this kind of a challenge. I think it, it's, a, it's a good time for that kind of an assessment. So, there is judgment for believers who resist pruning, that do not produce fruit, and that those who do not pr- produce fruit are cut off and thrown away and cast into the fire. That's what the Gospel of John says. So I'm going to be spending, I'm going to be unpacking this idea from the vine dresser's judgment that we read in John 15, verse 2 and verse 6. Verse 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, let's just be clear here. Verse 1, I am the vine, you are the branches. And my father is the vine dresser. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
every branch in me. That branch is connected to him. That does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, I don't know what kind of you know, the, theological background you come on this when it comes to this kind of thing. Reformed people would say, mm, you know, well, that person never really was in the branch. And your Wesleyan or Armenian might say, oh, no, it sounds to me like that person's going to lose their salvation. Regardless, it's not good. Whether you are Reformed or Armenian and however you want to interpret that passage, it's not good. And it does not bode well for a person who does not produce fruit. It really should be on some level. If we live the bulk or the whole of our life as, as believers and we don't produce much in the way of fruit, this is a passage that should terrify us. Then verse 6. <clears throat> If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. So John or Jesus unpacks verse 2 more. And he describes it in a more even more graphic fashion. If anyone does not abide in me, that could be a believer. I mean, if you read verse 2, it could be. It certainly is an unbeliever. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, dries up. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. So images of hell. So, but why this judgment? Why does this concern God so much? Um, why does Jesus teach in this kind of a way? So he goes on to say why. In verse 8. By this my Father <clears throat> is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so that you will be my disciples. So the Father's glorified through the production of fruit, and our discipleship is demonstrated. Our discipleship is demonstrated through the production of fruit. Then verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. So. We read here then, this is the criteria. This is the criteria for, by which we avoid judgment. That the Father is glorified in our life. That the discipleship to Christ must be obvious. The fruit that we produce demonstrate, uh, demonstrates our discipleship in an obvious way. And that you, I, have been appointed to be an important cog in God's sovereign purpose and plan. So those of you who employ other people, 
If you hire somebody, you are appointing them to a certain position. And you, they exist in the place that you work to do a certain thing that you've appointed them to do. Is that not right? But if they show up and do something other than what you've appointed them to do, does that make you happy or does that make you sad? Does that frustrate you? And what's more, and I've had this, uh, you know, uh, people that I have employed in the past when I've had interns as a youth minister, I had one particular person who, you know, I, I hired them to work with our youth in a particular way, and they said, ah, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. That's not important. What I want to do is more important. Well, then I got the wrong person, (laughs) right? Because they shouldn't be there. So, So I'm using this as an example for us to see, like, you don't even have to be an employer. Let's say you hire somebody to do your leaves or your lawn. And you say, I'll pay you X amount. Be here on this day. This is what I want you to do and how I want you to do it. And they show up and do something completely different other than the lawn or the leaves. You're asking yourself the question, why did I hire you? I hired you to appoint you to do this thing. I am saying to you, there are 7.8 billion people on this planet. And every one of them that exists, God appointed in some way to do certain things that he wanted done. And that when they decide that that's not what they want to do, that they want to do something else instead, and they live in abject disobedience to God in that way, then at some point... Why do they exist? What is their purpose? The truth of the matter is they probably are doing more harm than they do than they are helping. And when you and I are appointed by God, we are appointed to only help. He didn't appoint you to do evil things. He appointed you to be a primary cog in his sovereign purpose and plan in the place in which you find yourself. And you think, well, that doesn't sound like I have much in the way of autonomy or self-rule. Well, I, I think, I don't know that that's true. Because the truth of the matter is, is, is that most of us, when we do something that is other than what we have been appointed for, we are doing something other than what we have been gifted or talented for. We just spin our wheels. And so we not only don't show up for people who need us, we use ourselves and our lives in such a way that it damages us. So the essence of autonomy is to exercise your self-rule in a way 
that is absolutely the best thing for you. And the best thing for you and for me is to live in obedience to the appointment of God that he has for us. Because then we're living consistently with the essence of what we are. Does this make sense to you? How many of you know what a monkey wrench is? Right? You can pound nails in with a monkey wrench. You can. What's that? (laughs) No, I can't. But it's possible. Now, in most cases, if you use a monkey wrench to pound in nails, is the project that you have going to look good afterwards? Probably not. Is the monkey wrench going to be in better shape or worse shape afterwards? It's going to be in worse shape. But if that monkey wrench does exactly what it was designed to do, then it's doing what it's best for that monkey wrench and what is best for everything else. So we've got to stop monkeying around and be what we were created to be, what God appointed us to be. God chooses you. He chooses you and me to partner with us to achieve this great work, this overarching plan that he has in place. Again, we've all been in situations They don't have playgrounds anymore. They still have parks, but those probably won't last much longer either. But we've all been in those places where it was a pickup team or it was a game of some sort. And there were certain people there. They wanted us to pick them. I mean, to pick us. We wanted to be picked. We wanted to be first. We felt like we could contribute. We wanted to be associated with that person because of the the credibility, because of, of who they were. And yet here we have the God of the universe saying, I want to pick you. I want you to partner with me to achieve this great and overarching plan. Is there anybody here that doesn't want to do that? Or do we only want want to do what we absolutely have to do so that we are confident that when we die, we go to heaven and not to hell? So the criteria that John is outlining here is that the Father must be glorified. When people see how we conduct ourselves, when they see the impact that we have on their life as well as other lives, does it cause them to glorify God? I can tell you honestly that my life does not do that as much as it should. And I should come to terms with that. When people look at us, do they see us as the disciples of Christ? Do they see this church as the disciples of Christ? 
And that doesn't mean that we live our lives perfectly, but it does mean that that it's unmistakable about who we live our life for. Who we are in submission to. Who we've surrendered ourselves on behalf of. And are you joyful that God has appointed you? Everyone in this room everyone in this room if you believe that you are where you are supposed if you believe that you are where you're supposed to be right now in the work that you do the neighborhood that you live God has a plan for you as his disciple to give him glory in that place regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves, that you're appointed. And there's no escaping that. <clears throat> we have kind of a graphic example of God's judgment that I want to share with you this morning. And this is from Matthew 21, uh, verses 18 and 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. Um, and this is probably one of those rather obscure passages that it's easy to read over, not spend much time on it. I know that's been true of me. It may have been true of you. This particular passage happens right after the triumphal entry. So Jesus has, is at the end of his ministry. He's just a week away from being arrested, brutalized, and crucified. Um, he's just a week away from that. He's entered into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. And then, so he teaches during the day, and then the evening he goes out to Bethany and spends the, the evening there. So he's been in Jerusalem for one day. He leaves out. He spends the night in Bethany, and then he goes back into Jerusalem to teach again during that particular week. And um, he walks past this fig tree, and he looks at the fig tree expectantly. So early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately... The tree withered. So Jesus is looking at a tree that was growing there. It was a fig tree and it was the season in which figs should be growing. He was expecting to find figs on that tree, fruit on that tree. And he found nothing. And because he found nothing, the purpose for which that tree existed was no longer there. And he cursed that tree, and immediately it withered. Mark gives a little bit of a different description of it, other than the fact that that happened and it says, in the next day, the disciples walked past, or it was later that evening or the next day, 
uh, the disciples walked walked past and they saw the fig tree and they they questioned him about it like what what did you can you believe that what you said this is what happened to that fig tree now you think well it's a tree fig trees can live for 2000 years Fig trees are one of the most robust of all trees on the planet. And the fact that somebody can say, may you never bear fruit again, and it withers within a short period of time. What's Jesus saying here? I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but let me ask you this question. What if we were that fig tree? What if Jesus was walking past and he saw our life and he had a certain expectation based on our DNA, our experiences, our talents and gifts, all of which he gave to us. And as he approached us, the fruit that he was looking for, the fruit that should have been in season, he found nothing. That would be a terrifying thing, wouldn't it? And I'm sure for many of us, it would be like, we would hate to disappoint him in that kind of a way. There are two levels of interpretation of this particular passage, at least. The first of which is, Jesus' cursing that fig tree was a sign of God's judgment on Israel as the vine or as the fig tree. So if you were to read in Isaiah 34, 4, or Joel 1, 7 through 12, or Amos 4, 9, you would see how God refers to Israel um, metaphorically as a fig tree. And how, because that fig tree did not produce fruit, in those particular cases, Yahweh judged those fig trees as metaphors of Israel, and they withered. So you can interpret this passage in that kind of a way, as you should, because that would be the first lens by which you understand that passage. In a sense, Jesus, by saying that to the fig tree, was also saying that about Israel, because Israel did not produce the fruit that it was supposed to produce, and so it was cut off. It was judged. The second way in which we understand this passage is that that believers are grafted in to Israel. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, according to Paul in his great theological treatise that we know as Romans, the book of Romans, we read here in Romans 11, the larger passage is 11 through 24, but this is the, the, the passage I'm going to focus on. Then you will say branches were broken off, so that I might be grafted in. This is a conversation that the Apostle Paul is writing down where it's describing what happened to the Gentiles as if he's talking to the Gentiles. That would be you and me. And the Gentiles are saying uh, to God, as Paul records it, then you will say branches were broken off. Branches off were broken off of Israel, the fig tree, so that I might be grafted into that fig tree. You and I have been grafted in to Israel 
as the fig tree for God. We have been grafted in. Branches were cut off. Other branches were spliced in. And those other branches are the Gentiles who are believers. Paul goes on to say this, though, beginning in verse 20. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So there's judgment here. By not producing fruit. So, in the matter of discipline and judgment in John 15, um, when we are not optimal in our fruit production, we are pruned. And we spent several weeks talking about that. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from you about the pruning process. And many of you have been wrestling with what it means for God to be pruning your life. And I'm very glad that you've, you are doing that. And if you are not wrestling with what it means for God to be pruning your life, I would encourage you to do that very much. Because by not wrestling with what it means to be pruned, you may move yourself over into resisting what it means to be pruned. And if you are resisting what it means to be pruned, that may place you in an entirely different category. So for those who are not branches on the vine, and for those who resist God's pruning long enough, they are judged, cursed. Again, whether you take a Reformed position or whether you take uh, uh, an Arminian or, or, or Wesleyan position on this particular passage, I don't care what position you take, it's not good. It's dire in, on some level. It's not good. The Reformed person would say, well, that person was never a true believer in the first place. <clears throat> okay, fair enough. So if you think that you are a true believer, but there is no fruit, and because there's no fruit, it means that you were never a believer in the first place, that's a dire thing. You should be, you should be concerned about that. If you are Wesleyan in your theology, and the production of fruit means that you have uh, uh, removed yourself, in one sense, from the blessing of God, that's dire too. So on some level, there's judgment and there is a curse. Now, in this case, judgment is different than discipline. God's discipline is always redemptive. God's judgment is almost always rejection and um, Alienation. Now, I didn't bring my. Uh, Bree, did did were you, were we able to get that picture up? Because I forgot my my phone. I was going to read it off here, but I was going to give you an example of how um, judgment can be. Yeah, there we go. Uh, thank you, Bree. She's so good with what she does back there. Um, I don't know what we do without uh, her and Mike, but and uh, Brian. So here's a guy that went to jail. He was in prison. And must have done something pretty bad. He was a believer, sinned, was arrested, 
went to jail. And he found himself having been disciplined in this jail. And, uh, and so he has this encounter with, with these people. He says, so this whole group of these murderers are hanging out with me. And they go, what are you reading? I read the Bible to them. They said, will you keep reading to us? I said, well, why? They said, we can't read. I looked up to God and said, man, I see you. In this case, a man was disciplined. He came back to his faith while in prison and used that experience in a redemptive manner to read the Bible to murderers who could not read. There isn't anything that God cannot redeem. He's that powerful. He's that accomplished. And so if we are living in our lives in such a way that there's a, there's, there's a palpable amount of, of disobedience where our lives really aren't producing that much fruit, God can rescue from us from that, and he can use that in a way that only he can. And that's why we never give up. Because we realize that when we fail, that God's power is made manifest in our weakness. Remember Paul, his thorn in the flesh? But God's judgment is rejection and alienation. Now I will say in that passage from Romans 11, where in God's judgment he rejected Israel, he goes on to say that even though I have judged them and alienated them, if I want to, I can bring them back. I can graft them back into the tree. So there's always hope. But let me ask you this question. What must it be like for Jesus to look expectantly for fruit that he can use only to find nothing? I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. What kind of fruit would God find on you as a fig tree? How much fruit? Would he find any fruit? Would that fruit be the best that we could possibly do? Would we be willing to beg God to prune us so that we could produce still more fruit because he is worthy of our pruning and he is worthy of that fruit? Don't you think that's an appropriate response? Trust me. When we leave here and go there, there will be nothing. There won't be anything that God could ask of us that we would not see immediately that he was worthy of that request. All of this right here is just temporal. It is less than the blink of an eye when it compares to eternity. It will seem to be so shallow. Just not much of anything in comparison to the substance 
of eternity and of heaven itself. Now, I have, I guess this is not going to be the last week because I see that it's about 10 till. And what I want to do is I want to spend some time on what does it mean to be cursed like a withered fig tree. And so I have three primary passages that I'd like to unpack for you this next Sunday. And I am hopeful that because I'm talking about judgment, that you would make it even more of a priority to be here next Sunday. And if those who are listening to this, I don't know if they're listening to it today or maybe listen to it later this week. In a sense, there's probably isn't anything that's been more important that I've talked about in quite a while than what I'm talking about now. It is essential to your faith. It is essential to the faith of others. It is essential to the witness of this church. It is essential so that we can make the mark in the world that God wants us to make. So wrestling with these texts is of the utmost importance. So in one sense, it's kind of like a job review. You ever do those? Somebody reviews your job, you know, and they point out the good things and then say, well, you know, you could work. And after a while, you're kind of glad that you pointed them out because you really could improve. I remember I had a senior pastor. I was so raw, so green, so naive, so many things that I should. But I used to go to a staff meeting with him every Monday morning and for probably two to three hours we would go over every the, the most minuscule, the most the, the tiniest bit of my job that you could. I mean, it, he would just review every part of it, ask me about all of it, what did I think, why was I doing it this way? Every Monday, week after week, month after month, it was painful. But in the end. By the time I left that church, I was speaking nationally, the highest level of my discipline that you could in the country. I would have never been able to achieve that. We grew a youth ministry program that was in the top 2% of all youth ministry programs in the country. I would have never, ever, ever even gotten close to that had I not had those painful reviews that pointed out to me. And so because that happened, I was able to produce better fruit and more fruit. Don't you want to produce more fruit? Don't you want to have the kind of life that gives glory to God, that demonstrates your discipleship? Don't you really want to live out faithfully what you've appointed by God to do? So that's what we're going to spend some time on next week. And I hope that you're all back. And I hope that you understand that this is all grace. The fact that God even tells us this 
that he sends us these kinds of warnings. It's grace. You don't get that from tyrants. You don't get that from despots. You certainly won't get that from Satan. But you get it from God. So let's spend some time on it.